بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala we seek blessings on the Prophet peace be upon him continuing Gobash's book letters to a young Muslim we are now doing a chapter called Fragments of Memory who would like to volunteer and read for us I can read go for it Amina Dear Habibi Saif, I want to share with you my experience of growing up without a father in the Muslim world. In many ways, it is similar to growing up in an environment when you are in, where you are an outsider to what seems to be a homogenous community. Without a father, at an early age, you become suspicious of those around you who would usurp your absent father's role. You are fearful and protective of whatever you are sure about. You prefer not to trust because you know that not trusting will, make, will take you further than trusting. In fact, when you feel you cannot trust anyone, you become aware of the positive power of trust and its force in society. Have we already read this? Yeah, I feel like we have. Yeah, I think so too. <clears throat> let's, um, let's go to this, the limits of what we can know. Okay. Dear Safe, the United Arab Emirates was a country formed from the tribes around the tip of the Arabian Peninsula. The tribes were divided between those that were desert dwelling and those that were seafaring. They had historically had fallen under the control of the British who wanted to ensure safe passage from Britain to India. And so Britain set up something called a pro protectorate. This effectively meant that, that we were under British rule with few, if any, direct material benefits. As a historical entity, the UAE was not burdened by the Arab-Israeli conflict or the history of the region in any way similar to the other Arab nations. The Emirates had a clear sense of identity. We were marginal but determined survivors, and our culture, although young, was very strong. It is, as it has always been, a country that has genuine concern about the well-being of its citizens and residents. Through the formula for wealth distribution, though the formula for wealth distribution has changed from land grants in the 1970s to economic opportunities and jobs for all, the focus has always been on the Emirati individual. An, indi an Emirati individual with a character, a personality, and an identity. But looking back, the truth is that few people expected the Emirates to survive, let alone succeed in the manner that it has. Terrorism struck the Emirates for the first time on October 25th, 1977. I attended an English language school just down the road from our home. As the country was still undergoing tremendous investment in building, there were many foreign contractors, and this is why there were a number of English language schools. My siblings and I were sent to one as the quality of education was much higher than in the Arab language schools. I remember that day, I remember the day when I was abruptly pulled from class. My siblings and I were told that there would be a three-day holiday and we celebrated. Back at the house, however, we returned to find my mother crying. Men stood in small circles outside in the garden. The women remained inside to watch a funeral broadcast on the family television. It was an old television with knobs and wooden shutters. The house was crowded, hot, and I have a Vague recollection of everything feeling saturated by tears. An Emirati flag covered the coffin. I asked whose funeral it was, but received no answer. Many years later, I realized that it was my father's funeral. Over the years, I have spent many hours trying to piece together his life story. It has proved more difficult than might have been expected. The journey has been revealing and instructive, even though the facts of his life still remain hazy and in many cases simply unknown. The process of thinking about his life has opened up other areas for me personally. In attempting to come to grips with a father who was absent throughout vi through violence committed in a political context, I have been exposed in a direct manner to the way in which we investigate matters, the limits of what we are permitted to know and what we can know. 
the boundaries of legitimate questioning and the self-imposed silence on the assumption that certain thoughts should not be expressed. In our part of the world, we have yet to evolve legal me mechanisms that would allow for reviews of government or police action or third-party investigation into police performance. There is no clear mechanism to gain further information from government bodies. These legal mechanisms are developed as societies progress. Is he talking about America or the Emirates? Oh, wait, I can't hear anything. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So uh, he he's talking about the Emirates and he's talking about his father's murder. And, and so... <clears throat> In our society, in the United States, we still have some hope that if some crime is committed, whether it is by the police or by a citizen or whoever, that some investigation can take place. Obviously, as we have examples from BLM, that's not always the case. Um, yet, it is still more the case in our society than most other societies in the world. And so he's sort of giving a history of the development of, of the Emirates that, you know, how do they originally used to operate? They would give you land grants um, as a way to, to spread out the wealth in the society. And then that eventually changed to jobs rather than land. And the society continued to grow, but it still has a long way to go in terms of development. So I don't think he ever finds out who kills his father. And, and so the previous chapter, he had to go through life without his father. And then here he's talking not so much about the fact of not knowing who his father was, but it's also just, you know, the limits of society in terms of how developed it is. And all right, uh, let's continue. Um, when I was able to gain a certain perspective on this tragedy, the questions I had as a result of it became a rich source to be minded, to be mined. It has allowed me to think of how we collect facts and whether we are even allowed to collect facts. There are certain choi there are choices in how we write our histories, whether personal or public histories. What do we do when we simply do not have the facts? What do we do when there are glaring gaps in the life story we are attempting to rebuild? We begin to imagine what might have been the case, what a person would have or could have logically thought. We begin to project something of our own character into the person we are re rebuilding. Okay, so this was a really short but very philosophical uh, chapter. <clears throat> The idea is that there's always going to be unknown in your life, right? And, and to deal with the unknown, we compensate with our imagination. And so think of your future. Uh, it's almost impossible to just think of your future as like an empty space, even though in a way that's what it is right now, right? There's nothing there. And so you might take your, yourself in terms of what you're doing. You might have hopes about what will happen. You might have fears about what will happen. That's literally your imagination trying to fill up that void that is the unknown. And that's what we do with all the different unknowns in our life. We try to fill it up with something. And the challenge <clears throat> is to just get comfortable with the fact of the unknown. If you can get more and more comfortable with the fact of the unknown, that will diminish a lot of things like anxiety. Because anxiety very much relates to the unknown, right? It's, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And if you're someone who's used to getting, your, getting lost in your thoughts and running away with your thoughts, the anxiety gets worse and worse and worse. Some anxiety is physiological, but a lot of anxiety is literally just running away with your thinking, losing control of your thinking, 
and then it affects your mood it affects how you look at everything and then you and what are you just basically trying to do you're just trying to fill in the unknown the goal is just make, make peace with the fact that okay the unknown is there i don't know there are things that i have to do right now and there are some things that i can do for preparation like studying and work and this and that but fundamentally i don't know what the future is and so what we should replace that with is just trust that i'm going to be okay things are going to be okay now conceptually that's easy to be able to do it sort of requires us to take a leap of faith but yeah inshallah i'm gonna be okay there's a lot of times people do anxiety as a way to feel like they've thought of everything and they're protected or a lot of times people will worry about the unknown as a way to feel like they're doing something about the unknown. But they're actually not really doing anything. They're just making themselves miserable. And so often with the unknown, it's easier just to say, all right, yeah, I'll deal with it when I see it. Like, for example, who's going to be the president of the United States? <clears throat> Looks like it's going to be Biden. We don't know how easily or, or hard Trump is going to give it up. But there's no point in having anxiety about it because you have no control over it. And so just, you know, when we find out, we find out. See what I'm saying? You will always have a known in your life. That's part of the design of life. All right, uh, let's do the next one. My first dark days. Who would like to read this one? You want to volunteer? Me? You want my density again? Adil, I want your density to continue. <laughs> Where am I starting? <laughs> what? <laughs> you good? How about the title? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> My first dark days. Safe. The summer of 1977 was wonderful. We went on a cruise liner around the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. We swam and played on board in the sun. We strolled around different port cities and we met my Russian grandparents in Odessa. I have clearer memories of this short holiday than of many experiences I have had since. We came home to Abu Dhabi in the Emirates at the end of summer and went back to school. Then came the day when my younger brother and I were brought back home. Then my older brother and sister were flown to an unknown destination, flown home from boarding school. Then my mother sat us down and told us that our father had died and was not coming back. I remember my younger brother and I did not understand what died meant. And so we were told that he had gone away to a place called heaven. Would he be coming back? We were five and six years old, respectively. I thought to die was a temporary act. And as soon as it was completed, my father would be returned, would be returning, sort of like going to the office or going shopping. My brother had even less of an idea of what was going on. but We were both certain that nothing serious had happened. On the day of his assassination, your grandmother recounts, he stood at the top of the stairs and told her that he had been called to see off the Syrians at the airport and that it was an unexpected request. I am not meant, I'm not meant to be seeing him off, he said. I have other things to do today, but he dutifully complied. My mother says he looked angelic that day, that there was an aura around him. Perhaps it was, it was hindsight, but she speaks of having had a feeling, a pre Premonition, 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 yeah, premonition of something, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of something that was about to happen. 
He, had, he headed to the airport and met with the other officials and visitors. In the airport entrance, shots rang, shots rang out. Amidst the panic, it was alleged that his loyal driver dragged him to the car. The person who killed him was a 19-year-old Palestinian gunman. My father had become the direct victim of inter-Arab gun politics as it related to the Palestinian question and the Assad regime of, 1970s, of the 1970s and their brutal massacre of Palestinian refugees. Okay, so, so here um, he's giving us some background, of course. One thing I'd like you to think about <clears throat> is that we don't really know how old he is at the time. I think he'd said it in a previous essay. So let's say he's give or take about five or six years old. And one of the experiences, like when you go through big changes in life uh, and you're a kid, you're looking for someone to guide you on what's happening and how should you feel. And you'll see this, inshallah, when your parents or if your aunts and uncles, that that little kids all the way from basically age zero on to uh, pretty much high school, you are looking to the elders to tell you, should you worry about this? Should you not worry about this? You know, should you, how should you react to this? That's a big part of basically the experience of being an elder. And when you don't have someone telling you that, then we have what we talked about in the previous essay, where you start filling it in yourself. And then you don't know how to react to all these things. And so, so keep that point in mind when you are interacting with young people, that they, are, they don't realize that they're looking to you on guidance on how to navigate life, including how do you react. And then, and then yeah, this is other issue, the, the Palestinian question. But yeah, here's here's his dad who has who has nothing um, in terms of any role in the conflict, but the uh, uh, the father of the current head of of Syria, current head of Syria is Bashar Assad. His father is Hafez Al-Assad. He was very very brutal in crushing any any uprising. And here they're probably talking about Black September, where <clears throat> the Muslim Brotherhood takes over a town. And then they send in fighter pilots and literally kill everybody. And it was like 10,000 people all in one day. Might have been 30,000. That's something we can find out uh, uh, online. I'm noticing okay. a trend. Yeah, go ahead. Um, here it says the attack at the airport was carried out by a 19-year-old. And I know in what recently happened, like the beheading of that teacher in France was like an 18-year-old. Um, and I'm sure there are plenty of other examples, but it seems to be young people who end up doing these atrocities. Well, absolutely. You know, that <clears throat> young people will be the ones that um, that will sort of try to take the law into their own hands. And even if you think of like the companions of the prophet, peace be upon him, most of them were young, right? You know, whether we're talking about Ali and, and all the others, that um, the, the people who are older usually have many, many, um, life obligations, liabilities and such, you know, I got to take care of my family, got to pay the bills and stuff. When you're in the college age, you don't have as many of those obligations. And, and so those are often the people that are doing a lot of these acts and you don't have as much life experience to be able to truly process the consequences of what you do. So for example, uh, I mean, so I don't know how many of you have actually made it to the Loyola campus when you enter through the through, not the main entrance, but where the CTA line is, there's sort of a Loyola gate, and 
I think there used to be a, a gate where you enter in the place where you drive in where Mundelein is. And <clears throat> most universities, the old universities will have some sort of ornamental gate. Anybody know what, what that's for? Is it like the people who graduate, they walk under it? So in theory, it has all kinds of meanings like that. In reality, yeah, go ahead, Emma. In UGA, they have a really special gate and it's like, you're only allowed to walk under if you graduate. Otherwise yes. you're cursed. So there is a there are things like that at Loyola, like these doorways that you go through only twice in your college career and stuff. But all these old schools have gates because they used to have a full wall or a fence around them to keep the students in when they start getting activist and protesty and all that. And so all these schools used to, you know, part of their design was to keep the students contained. And they were rebelling. And in fact, UIC, so none of you are from Chicago. No, Adel's from Chicago. So UIC is like not too far from where the Sears Tower Willis Tower is, you know, right near downtown. It used to be where Navy Pier is. So long before Navy Pier was this, this amusement park place, uh, long before that UIC was there. And why? Because during Vietnam, it was easy to keep all the students under control because you would just block off Navy Pier and the <laughs> students could get off, uh, off of Navy Pier. Push them off to the sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and yeah, so so to your point, Amon, it's usually young people that are that are doing these attacks because it's easy to get them riled up with passion and such, and to get them to do things. Okay, are you about to say something? I always thought that like universities had that like kind of gate around them to protect the students from like the outside world and it's like vice versa i just, just to protect the outside world from the students <laughs> yeah because like i totally see that at loyola like it's definitely like you can definitely tell that it's like cut off from the rest of the the town city it's yeah. weird yeah. Exactly huh. it. good to know uh, all right uh Adel, please continue yeah, where did I stop? <laughs> okay. I learned in short conversations scattered haphazardly over the years what that day meant for people. The news came out fairly quickly that the assassination was a Palestinian. This caused anger and in some cases rage among my fellow Emiratis. This was for a host of reasons. The UAE under the presidency of Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al Nahyan. <laughs> founder of the UAE had always been tremendous supporter of the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian people. The UAE had dotted large sums to the Palestinian cause and had opened, opened its doors to many Palestinians so that they could work and live in the UAE. My father, my father had been a vocal and committed supporter of the rights of the Palestinians and had been heard making him impassioned speeches at the UN General Assembly meeting in New York. For him to be assassinated and by a Palestinian was a cruel irony and cause for anger. One close Palestinian friend of my, of my father told me that anyone not wearing traditional Emirati clothing was at risk of being beaten by Emiratis wanting to take revenge. He himself found he was unable to attend the funeral prayer in honor of his close friend due to fear Similar, similar feelings were expressed by others. The papers were covered with the news, page after page of photographs and minute and minute descriptions were provided. The clearest memory I have is the photograph of the windows partially scattered by the bullets. 
there were black circle black circles drawn around the holes on the hazy photos. The number of shots were counted. The location of the shooter was outlined in another photograph on the first floor landing. He had shot from above and down into the group as they walked through the main door to the airport terminal. Okay, so so the interesting thing is, okay, this is, you know, this, you have all of these people who are focused on Palestinian liberation and they're upset because of the Palestinian who did the shooting. And so then the question is, well, who sent the Palestinian? Was he just some lone gunman or did someone convince him to, to do this? And this is the challenge when you have conflict and it could be, you know, a big global foreign policy conflict like this, or it could be something that seems to be small, like, uh, you know, let's say three people gossiping and then a person, another person gets pulled into, into it. And then another person gets pulled into it and then it creates this big, big toxic mess. And this is the challenge of, of, of just this type of oppression or this type of conflict. How do you keep your hands clean and how do you keep clear what's going on? And so that's what started happening in Syria. In Syria, you know, 10 years ago, it was clear you had Assad who was oppressing the Syrians and so you had Syrians who were revolting. And then you had other people like ISIS that started to stick their heads in. And then you had other people sponsored by the Russians that stuck their heads in, sponsored by the CIA, sponsored by the Turks, sponsored by the FBI. And, and it's like, well, who's right here now? Everyone is, 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 is becoming part of this. And then the mess just, uh, the end result is that it just gets more and more bloody. Uh, okay, uh, let's see, I will continue. I read and reread the papers from October 26, 1977. In the few days that followed, as a child, I was eager to know what happened. I wanted to know every detail. I wanted to know why and how and what and where, and then why again. I saw these newspapers for the first time in 1983 when I was 12 years old. The emotional impact was heavy. I read the newspapers over the course of a few days. Then I repacked them into the steel suitcase in which they had been stored by my mother for safekeeping. Over the next few years, I returned to them. I would notice a few more details as well as a few more missing elements. No mysteries were solved, but they left a set of impressions on me. It became very clear to me as the years passed that the pictures created by the papers over the course of a few days showed that a man's life can be ended brutally. Without warning for reasons he could not have guessed. Even in his last few moments of life, I can only imagine that my father would not have guessed at a, at a reason for why he had been shot that day. In fact, he might be surprised if he knew that in 2017, almost four years after his death, his widow and his children still cannot make sense of it. It is in a certain respect of comedy of deathly errors that involve a young Palestinian man with a gun and a target. But who does not recognize which of these two men in suits of the same height and build is the, may, is the man he has been sent to kill. It is with bitterness that I think of other instances where a lack of training and education led to tragedy in the Arab world. I am, I am telling you this family history, not just because it is a part of your history also, I am telling you because your grandmother's killing has made me very aware of all the other places where we use violence in order to get what we want. There is a way in which violence is a part of our lives and we cannot deny it. This is what you need to think about and question why. Years later, I was at- I need to interrupt for a second. 
this is also one of the questions of the day. So we call this the democratization of violence that, uh, you know, not just, you know, the, the shootings that we've been seeing relate to BLM and such, but the sheer amount of, of violence that is in the world, whether it's through guns or bombs or something, that today get a small group of people, less than a classroom full of people, and then they can wreak huge amounts of damage. So keep in mind, 9-11 was 19 people. In Oklahoma City, where they blew up half of a building, uh, was four people. You know, and 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 so that's one of the big big questions of today that nobody has an answer for. How do you prevent, you know, violence in general? How do you prevent, you know, large scale violence? There's obviously some things where here he's talking about the need for education and such, and then we would add perhaps a need for guiding people to purify their hearts and such, but then how do you get people to get the education? How do you get people to recognize the need for a purification of the heart and all that stuff? This is one of the fundamental questions of our era. So just like climate change is one of the fundamental questions, violence is one of the fundamental questions. Um, in my sociology class, uh, this is like kind of unrelated, but I feel like and this is like a different topic, but I yeah. think it's related. Um, we were talking. Uh, we had to read a paper about um, like school shootings, and um, the paper essentially looked at the fact that they were primarily like white boys, usually in like a mid, like suburban setting, all this stuff, and it linked um, like these shootings to like homophobia and like um, because all of these instances didn't just have bullying, but specifically it was like bullying in relation to like demasculization and stuff. so it was really it was really interesting and um i don't know it just made me think about like when we approach violence it's not usually just like violence it's like like mm -hmm. usually specific situations which unfortunately just complicates it more but yeah that's a i think it's a really really important point like there's another thing they notice for like for for it won't be school shootings but older people you know who go in and shoot everybody at their former employer you almost 100% of the time you find a history of domestic violence in their in their history as well. And, and so, yeah, so this is part of the process of figuring out how to prevent uh, this type of horrendous violence from happening. One of the signs of end times is that there's gonna be so much killing that the killer, the killed is not even gonna know why they were killed. The killer is not gonna know why they're killing. And that's what I think of when I'm here, when I'm going through this story. It's like, you know, he doesn't know who he was supposed to kill. And the person who was killed doesn't know why he's being killed. And uh, this is a, a serious, serious challenge of our, of our era. All right, continue. Years later, I was at an Abu Dhabi hospital seeing a doctor who had known my family for years. He took out a pen and a paper and began to sketch a heart with a torn coron coronary artery. This was Corona artery. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this was the damage done by one of the bullets to my father. Some people have told me what his last words were alleged to have been, but there seems to be no way of really knowing. It is fascinating how people invent events and utterances in the hope that they will make you feel better. From what I gather, my father lost so much blood that he could not have survived the car ride into the hospital. I can only guess at this stage, as there were differing accounts as to who actually pulled him from the scene and who drove him to the hospital that day. 
it has made me very aware of how people re report things and how people will defer when recounting the smaller events. This is something you need to be aware of when you hear people starting stating with certainty what happened centuries ago. Okay, so you see the connection he's making to trying to make sense of his father's life and then then trying to figure out what happened in history, going all the way back to the life of the prophet we see upon him. People are trying to construct these things with limited knowledge. And sometimes people get very aggressive and say, no, it was exactly like this, but there might be a lot more variables. Uh, let's do, well, let's see, let's do uh, one more paragraph. My father's life ended in violence. This violence destroyed him. When I was 12 and reading the newspapers from the day following his shooting, I felt that his violence was the only violence that existed. Only the violence committed against my father had any pre presence, any meaning for me. Clearly, it was violence that outlived its moments and passed through across the years. What surprised me and continues to move me to action is that this violence has imp imprinted itself across my mother and siblings' lives and the lives of you and your brother. Because I was six when my father died, I remember how when you turned six, oh, I remember how when you turned six years old, you, work, you, wor you worried for the entire year that I would die just as my father had died. Yeah, and this is another part that's often forgotten in the story. We all intellectually understand it, that think of all the stories of the killings from this past year, George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, such and such and such. <clears throat> uh, their loved ones will live with the death for the rest of their lives. Their loved ones will live with the murders for the rest of their lives. As a society, we're just going to keep moving on. But their life is, in some cases, going to be literally on pause for the rest of their lives. And they have to figure out how to be able to move forward. And that's what he's talking about here. That his life, his brother, his siblings' lives, his mother's lives, they've all been sort of put on hold in a way in terms of development because their father was ripped up in their life. That's another serious part of, of violence and such. Uh, let's stop right here. Anyone have any questions, thoughts, reflections about anything? I think, yeah, this is a pretty, pretty uh, heavy, heavy essay. How much money? How do you say the coronary artery? Coronary. Coronary. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is a big one. There's a lot more in here. He's gonna talk Wait, about what? Oh, yeah. Wait, what? I'm sorry. What was that? Coronary. Coronary. I'm not a pre med student, okay? I'm not one of those nerds. Yeah, no, it's perfectly fine. I uh, just know carotid artery because and the femoral artery because that's what they tell you to not get shot at or you will die in two minutes. No. Where's your carotid artery? In your neck. That's a femoral. <laughs> Thank you for saying it with such force. <laughs> and your femoral is in your thigh. If you get shot there, you're going to die in two minutes if you get bleed out. That's at home. It's getting scary. All righty. We'll stop right here and we'll continue in Chala next time. Someone make a note Hello. that we're. Can you hear me? Are you there? Okay. Someone make a note that we are still talking about the death of his father. Subhanakallahumma <laughs> bihamdika. All right, Melatoro, where do you all tell them? Assalamu alaikum.